This podcast was recorded before the recent events in the UK where a policeman has murdered a woman walking home, completely innocent and doing nothing wrong, took all the precautions and still this thing keeps happening. And I just wanted to start off with a little message of respect. You know, it's awful what's going on. And this is a trigger warning. Um, today's podcast is a conversation with a survivor of kidnapping and rape. And um, yeah, I just want to make you aware of that before it starts. Uh, obviously, I support the campaign going on right now for women to feel safer on the streets. Um, you know, I know I'm a lads lad and I make a lot of jokes and stuff like that. But, you know, this is serious. And yeah, I think... A lot of men up there are probably reflecting, you know, should I say this, should I have said that in the past, you know, it just makes you realize now what women have to go through when you're saying it on such a scale where they just don't know who is dangerous and who isn't dangerous. So they have to treat everyone potentially like they could be. And I think maybe out there men are feeling a little bit like, well, it isn't me. And, and but, but, you know, we need to not feel like take this personally we need to realize that if we had daughters and we were telling them they were going out on a night out treat everyone like they could be because you just never know and that's all they're trying to do so i i get it and uh, i think you know a lot of things have been going on in the past that you know like people whistling out of their cars and stuff like that was back in the day that was just seen as the norm but now in the world we're living in things have to change and you know it's important women feel safe so um yeah this podcast is one of the most emotional powerful podcasts i've ever done and uh, one of the most important because i do want to use my platform for good and as much as i love making people laugh um you know raising awareness to what these victims go through can can only be a good thing so i hope you guys get as much from her words as i did it's Elizabeth Smart on the True Jody podcast. I was a pretty quiet kid. I was pretty shy. I think it'd be fair to say I was very much a wallflower. I had a great childhood. I had a great family. I had lived a very sheltered life. I lived a very protected life. None of us ever imagined anything bad could happen to anyone in our neighborhood. And I remember my parents getting us ready to go to bed and I actually even remember going around with my dad, checking the doors and the windows in my house to see that they were closed and that they were locked. And then I remember going to bed. Up until that point in my life, the things that scared me were doing poorly on a test or going to my music lessons unprepared. And so all of a sudden hearing this voice, this man's voice that I didn't recognize saying, I have a knife at your neck, don't make a sound, get up and come with me. I mean, that just brought a whole new meaning to the word scared. 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was abducted from her home. Elizabeth Smart was taken from her bedroom in the middle of the night. Every parent's worst nightmare. Now, the kidnapping happened around 2 o'clock this morning, again, as we said, in the Salt Lake Federal Heights area. I mean, this was the biggest man search ever put on for anyone. We were doing everything we possibly can to help you. My older brother, I remember talking to him, and he was just like, a day didn't go by without your face being all over the news, newspapers or magazines. He was like, it was everywhere. We begin 
begin today with the statewide alert for the missing girl and the man who took her. No one had been there to stop him from doing anything he wanted to me. So when he would threaten me and say, I will kill you if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do, I believed him. And that's when he said that I was now his wife. And then he kept saying over and over, it's now time to consummate our marriage. And I just remember thinking, why would someone marry a child? Welcome back to the True Geordie podcast. Um, I don't usually do remote interviews, but uh, I've decided to make an exception today for a woman who really is an inspirational person after reading up on her and I reached out. And luckily, we've got the interview. Um, welcome, Elizabeth Smart. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, Thank you. It's sad that sometimes such inspirational people have to uh, go through a lot of struggle uh, to to become that inspiration. But your story is something that when I started researching it, it just really blew me away. And not just, obviously... Um, it was how you dealt with that that blew me away. The strength that you've shown in your life is something where it's just unbelievable, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, just to, to fill the audience in, um, when you were 14, um, you were kidnapped and um, held for nine months. And um, you went through a lot in that time. And you've not let that define you. You've gone on to do so many amazing things. I really want to cover some of those today. But um, I guess I just wanted to start off by asking what you were like before all of that and what you sort of had planned for your life or what kind of kid you were. I was a pretty quiet kid. I was pretty shy. I think it'd be fair to say I was very much a wallflower. Um, I mean, I was not popular um i had friends but i i was not the popular one by any <laughs> means and um i mean i was yeah i was excited to be done with junior high i was excited to go to high school you know i came from a large family i was second of six kids so you know there's always a bit of a struggle when there's that many kids as well. far as being heard and um, I don't know, standing out from them, but mm -hmm. no, it was, I had a great childhood. I had a great family. Um, I lived in a really nice neighborhood. Uh, none of us ever imagined anything bad could happen to anyone in our neighborhood. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. think any of us could ever even imagine anything bad happening to anyone. I mean, sure. We watched the news, but that almost seemed like it was a different world because mm -hmm. it was the news. It wasn't, you know, it was anyone we knew. Yeah, the news doesn't feel real, does it? Until it's sort of, till you're affected by something um, serious. Um, you know, if 14, um, when I was at school, there was 14-year-olds who were way too grown up and there were 14-year-olds who were, you know, like really childish. I guess I'm wondering mentally what kind of kid you were at that age. Um, I was, I don't think I was childish. I think I was naive. I think I was, I mean, I think I was very polite. I was very respectful. I didn't act like a spoiled baby, a spoiled brat at 14. Mm -hmm. 
but I was, I lived a very sheltered life. I lived a very protected life. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I didn't really know a whole lot about sex. I mean, I'd only learned what it was, you know, a couple years earlier from my friend across the street telling me. (laughs) And when she told me that, I about died. I remember just thinking, that is awful. That's so bad. I mean, doesn't anybody realize, like, that is where the pee comes out. That is so nasty. (laughs) Um, And that was still, I mean, that was still my thoughts on what sex was. I mean, rape, I didn't even know I didn't even really know what rape was. I didn't mm. know. And certainly I didn't think there was a difference between sex and rape. And I mean, I did. there was a lot of things that I had been very sheltered from that I didn't know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, y- your family were a, a beautiful family from everything I've, I've seen. They seem such good, wholesome people. So part of that naivety is them doing such a great job, you know, protecting you from things that you shouldn't know at that age. Yeah, I I mean, both my parents were very active, very involved in all of our lives. And I mean, we had very clear boundaries set within our family and Mm -hmm. there were rules. And um, I mean, I think probably all of us honestly felt like we had the most strict parents of all of our (laughs) friends. But um, I mean, I like looking back and as a parent now myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get why they did that. Yeah, it's like that, I suppose. Um, and and going back to the the day of the that your life changed, um, can you take me through what that sort of if you can remember how the day went up until that moment, um, just so we can get an idea of what it was like. I remember going to school, talking with my friends, talking about our summer plans. Um, I remember the cross-country coach from the local high school had come over to uh, my junior high and had said, oh, you should try out for the team. And I was pretty excited about that because I had never been particularly athletic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I remember going home that day and just pestering my mom to let me go for a run. But I mean, even before anything happened, she was always like, you can't go by yourself. You can't go by yourself. You're a 14-year-old girl. You can't go by yourself. And I mean, we lived in a safe neighborhood. She's like, take your sister with you and take the dog with you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I remember taking my sister, taking the dog, going out for a run. We got back later than we anticipated. Uh, That night was like the awards assembly for our school. And so... I remember rushing to that with my parents after dinner. I remember getting home and I remember my parents getting us ready to go to bed. And I actually even remember going around with my dad, checking the doors and the windows in my house to see that they were closed and that they were locked. And then I remember um, my parents calling us together for our evening family prayer and then i remember going to bed the doors and the windows were were, were they locked were they all locked because i so a lot of them were quite high off of the ground mm-hmm. and there was a couple of windows in our kitchen that they were just skinny they were more narrow windows mm. and i didn't check those but my dad he checked them but he must have just left them cracked open just a little bit my mom she actually had burnt dinner that night which is like unheard of for her Mm -hmm. and so there's a little bit of that burnt smell lingering and so i think he must have just left one of the windows cracked open just a little Mm. bit to try to air the kitchen out but everything was locked up but 
I mean, even locking the doors, even though we did that, it wasn't something that we were like, oh, did you lock the doors? Did you double check the doors? Did you triple check the doors? Like yeah. all the windows locked because we, we lived in a nice neighborhood. We, yeah, it was a beautiful place. We thought we lived in a very safe neighborhood. I mean, you know, I grew up playing um, night games out in the middle of our street with the neighbor kids almost every night in the summer. So it wasn't something that we were actively worried about something bad happening. Which makes it even more shocking, really. Like um, for someone who's just had such a nice upbringing and such a idyllic place to then you, you you wake up and you have a stranger in your bedroom. Um, what what was that like? It was terrifying. It, I, I Up until that point in my life, the things that scared me were doing poorly on a test or maybe when my parents had told me to clean my room 20 times and then I could hear them coming up the stairs and I still hadn't done anything that kind of scared me a little mm. bit or going to my music lessons unprepared or, I mean, probably the stupidest thing that scared me was the movie, The Never Ending Story. Those were the kinds of things that scared me. And so all of a sudden hearing this voice, this man's voice that I didn't recognize saying, I have a knife at your neck. Don't make a sound. Get up and come with me. I just I didn't even think it was real at first. I thought it had to be part of my imagination part of my subconscious part of my dream even yeah yeah but um the voice repeated those same words again i have a knife at your neck don't make a sound get up and come with me and i remember opening my eyes and it was real i mean there was a man standing above me i could feel something cold i could feel something sharp on my neck i could feel someone's hand on my arm trying to pull me out of bed and I mean, that just brought a whole new meaning to the word scared. Um, yeah, I think you've really painted such a good picture in just how, you know, um, sheltered you were. And then to have the horrors of the world wake you up one day like that, it's it's such a contrast to anything you've ever known before. I can only um, imagine what a shock that must have been. With it being, I'm assuming you slept in the dark, so I'm assuming he... Could you see him, like his face, or could you really make that out? Um, I couldn't really make out his face too much. I mean, the room we slept in, it was night. I mean, obviously it was dark, but there was a street light not too far away from my bedroom window. And I mean, I I grew up in Utah. We've got blue skies, clear mm. skies, probably 250 days of the year. And uh, so, I mean, it was dark, but it was light enough that I could make out some of his features. Not not as well as in the daytime, but mm-hmm. I mean, I could see darker shadows and, and less shadows of his face. And I could mm-hmm. tell he had a beard and I could tell he had a like a, a snow stocking cap on. And mm-hmm. I could tell that he was dressed in dark clothes and had a bag with him. And one of the things that makes this even more terrifying is that your uh, sister was in the room with you as well. So you were also worried about her, I assume. Yeah, uh, my sister and I, we shared a room forever. I mean, we had always shared a room. And we actually, at that point in time, we shared a bed even. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I had woken up and he started telling me to go with him, 
Um, I mean, I was scared. I was scared for myself. I had to wonder how he got all the way up to my room because my room wasn't on the ground floor. I mean, my room was probably at the highest point of the house. You had to go up a flight of stairs. You had to wrap around the house. You had to go down a hallway. You had to walk past my brother's bedrooms. Um, I mean, you, you really had to penetrate deep into my home before you could get up to my room. And he had managed to do that. And so I didn't know had he already killed my family members. I mean, doesn't everyone have that one stare, that one step in their house that's extra squeaky when you go up them? I mean, how had he gone past that and my parents not heard? I mean, they always seemed to catch us whenever we tried to sneak down to the kitchen in the middle of the night. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, why, why hadn't they come? Did something happen to them? And I remember laying there and the one thing I could tell was that she was still alive. She was asleep. I could hear her breathing. I could see her breathing. And so I felt like I didn't have a choice. I felt like I had to get up and Mm -hmm. go with him and do what he said. Cause if I didn't, he might take her or he might hurt her or he might kill her. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people can sit there and say what they would have done in that situation. But when you've, uh, when you feel that cold blade against you, um, I can only imagine how, how terrifying that is. So, you, you know, Luckily, you didn't fight, really, in my opinion, anyway. But um, do you look back at that situation and have any, you know, things that you would have done differently? Or are you grateful that you just stayed alive in that moment? Knowing everything that I know now, that, you know, most predators are um, predators as long as there's vulnerability, as long as there's opportunity. Certainly, I was asleep. So, of course, I was vulnerable vulnerable but if i screamed you know would that opportunity have disappeared would he have been too worried about saving himself to get out of the house or would he have killed me it's hard to say and so when people ask me do i regret not doing something or would going back would i do something else my answer is no i wouldn't change what i did because I don't know what he would have done. I mean, it would not have been that hard to apply just a little bit more pressure and Mm -hmm. slit my throat. Um, Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been that hard for him to just stab me Mm -hmm. wherever he wanted, the face, the neck, the stomach, my chest, wherever, and turn around and run out of the house. So I don't regret doing what I did. And actually, I think it's a pretty important point to make because... There are so many of us who who do freeze when something like this happens, and it's actually a very natural response. I mean, not everyone fights back. Not everyone is able to run away. Um, The two probably less talked about sort of natural reactions are to freeze or Mm -hmm. to appease. And I feel like what happened to me was a mixture of both. And ultimately, I'm here today. I survived, so I don't regret doing what I did. And nor should any other victim or survivor uh, second guess what they've done because they're still alive and whatever horrors they've experienced, at the end of the day, it's not their fault. And this blame should not be put on them for doing something more. Very well said, yeah. I'm aware that uh, there are victim blamers out there. And I think it's great that you touch on that because, you know, it's completely crazy for me for anyone to blame a victim for what happens to them 
you know, and you know, we're 14 years old. I can only imagine, I think 99.9% of 14 year olds would have done the same thing as you. Um, so yeah, I completely support what you're saying there. Um, so this guy then tries to get you out of the house. Um, what, how did that whole thing play out? Because you're sort of hoping that someone's going to notice, I'm assuming, that whole time. I mean, I remember he actually walked me into my closet and he had me, I started to reach for a pair of slippers to put on because they were easy to put on. But he specifically pointed out and said, no, take those shoes. And they were my, like, they were my running shoes. So mm-hmm. I grabbed my running shoes instead. And um, then he led me back out through my bedroom, down the hallway, around the corner, down the stairs, around the corner again, in through the kitchen. And he went to the back door, unlocked the door. And I remember as we approached the back door thinking, oh, when he opens this door, the alarm's going to go off. Mm -hmm. Um, But he opened the door and the alarm did not go off. And um, I guess the magnet that was set in the frame had fallen out or... I don't know. It didn't go off though. And I remember he, at this point, I still didn't even have my shoes on. I was still carrying them. And I grew up in a neighborhood that was on uh, one of the mountain sides that overlooks the Salt Lake City Valley. And uh-huh. so my backyard, I mean, it's, it's steep, it's mountain. And I remember he led me up through my backyard and it wasn't fenced. It opened up into a vacant lot. And then uh, we got to the top of my backyard, close to the vacant lot. He had me sit down, put on my tennis shoes. Then he had me get back up and we kept going. We got to the top of this vacant lot where there's one more street uh, in our neighborhood. And after this street, um, it's just just mountains after that. Mm -hmm. And instead of crossing right away, he pushed me down behind some bushes. I remember just thinking what is going on? And then I could see some headlights coming towards us. I started thinking, oh, this is the getaway car. This is all planned. No one is ever going to find me. What is going to happen? I mean, am I going to live to see another day? Am I ever going to see my family again? What is what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. And I remember the headlights getting closer and I actually remember them passing right in front of me. And I remember seeing the word police written on the side of the car. And for that half a second that it was in front of me, I just remember thinking, it's going to be okay. The police are here. They're going to come rescue me. Everything's going to be fine. I just, it's going to be fine. The police are here. But unfortunately, they didn't stop. They kept going. And that's when he pulled me off the ground, had me run across the street and start heading up into the mountains on the other side. I'm assuming the possibilities are really starting to run through your head at that point of, okay, what happens next then? Because now he's got me. Yeah, I mean, I remember asking him as we got farther away from my home, I kept asking him, why was he doing this? What was he going to do to me? And he'd really kind of switch between a couple answers. One of them was, he said he was taking me as his hostage. Um, He was going to hold me for ransom. Um, We got farther and farther up. And I I just remember trying to, reason with them. I mean, my family never hurt anyone. Mm -hmm. As far as I knew, nobody had any grudges against us. Why would he do this? Why did he choose me? How did he get into a house? And a lot of the, a lot of my questions, he just kind of responded with, 
um, he'd say something like, well, I'll, I'll tell you when we get to where we're going or you'll find out in due time. Was his tone of voice um, aggressive or was it calm or what kind of state of mind did he look like he was in at that moment? He was overall pretty calm, but it was definitely, I mean, there was definitely a seriousness to his voice. I mean, yeah. It, it wasn't like, he, it, he didn't act scared. He didn't act like this was something he'd never done before. He didn't, he acted like he had planned out everything. Like he knew where he was going. Um, he knew exactly what to do. Um, he wasn't going to take no for an argument. He wasn't going to allow me, that he would, um, for as calm as he was, he made it very clear to me that uh, I could not run from him and that I could not fight him. He still had his knife. Um, he still, he was holding on to me for a lot of the run, the run, a lot of this, mm-hmm. I don't know, his escape plan. And yeah. it was, I mean, it was pretty difficult. There was a lot of trees. There was a lot of brush. If he ever let go of me, I mean, it was at a point in time where it was so steep. It was almost like we were going up this canyon and it was just so narrow and so steep. And there were so many trees. It just, I couldn't have gotten far, even if mm-hmm. I did try to run. When I was uh, reading up on this, uh, from what I remember, and you, you could tell me if I'm wrong, he, he mentioned something about God during this whole thing. Is that right? Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, I mean, when the police car passed in front of us and he was holding me down behind the bush, I remember him saying, he said, you know, if this work is true, God, let this car pass. And Mm. I remember hearing that and just, what? (laughs) What? I I, I guess that gives a window (laughs) into the kind of state of crazy state of mind this guy's in. Like if he's thinking that taking a 14-year-old girl from her home and holding her at knife point is the God's work. Like, this is clearly a man who's completely out of his mind. It's just crazy, that. So um, he's he's planned his escape route out, and he's dragging you all this way. Do you know how far you got before you yes. settled? <laughs> yes, I actually do. Um, mm. It was... So where the hideout was... To my house, it was 3.3 miles. Mm. That's quite shocking for people, I would imagine, because obviously it's so close to your house. But then, as you were saying, there's so much um, land, that's um, that terrain that people wouldn't travel across. It's highly unlikely that they would have found him, I guess. Well, and I think when most people... Um hike or explore they tend to stay either on the top of the mountains mm-hmm. or they stay at the base of them mm-hmm. and where this hideout was located i mean we went all the way we went far far up this um canyon and then we crossed over the top of the mountain but mm-hmm. we didn't go to the bottom and we didn't stay at the top we kind of stayed in the upper middle third mm-hmm. of of the mountain so and there was nothing that really stood out about where I was held captive. I mean, it pretty much looked the same as the rest of the mountains. So there would be no reason for someone to have their attention drawn to this location. There'd be no reason for someone to 
uh, pay extra special attention to it or anything. I mean, it, it just looked like the rest of the mountain. And, and the real strange thing for me hearing about it was that there was a woman waiting there, which, you know, as a as a young girl, you're thinking, oh, there's a woman, maybe she can, you know, help me. I mean, I remember when he told me that his wife was waiting for us. I mean, that all of a sudden started making me think of a whole bunch of different scenarios. I think, I mean, I think that when something happens to me personally, my brain automatically starts hoping for the best outcome. Mm -hmm. And so my mind started thinking of different scenarios that would make maybe why he kidnapped me understandable or less horrific than maybe I originally thought. And so when he said he had a wife waiting for me, I just started thinking, well, maybe they always wanted to have a child and they couldn't have a child. And maybe that's why he kidnapped me. Or maybe they had a daughter and she died and I look mm -hmm. like her. I mean, that was the direction that my mind started going. But as soon as I saw her the first thing she did was she hugged me, which for a second, you almost think that that confirmed the direction my mind was going in, mm -hmm. but it didn't. <laughs> really? It let me, I mean, it, it let me know that, that <laughs> she was dangerous, that she was not there to protect me, that she was not there to help me, that if I ever crossed her in any way, that I would be sorry for it. Did she say that verbally or was that just a vibe oh. that she gave? No, she didn't say that. That was just a vibe. Okay, so she was scary. Yeah, very. Oh. What time of day would you say this is roughly now with your, when you made it there? So by the time we made it there, uh, it was, I mean, the sun was up. It was light outside by now. Uh -huh. um, so I think it was probably 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Okay. So he has like I'm assuming like a camp set up in, in this place. What what was what kind of living circumstances did they have? Right. So it was I mean it was a camp, but it was a very well prepared camp. I mean, like I said, it was up pretty high up on one of these mountainsides and you could see that there had been considerable time and effort gone into planning this camp because first of all, it was very difficult to get to. And mm -hmm. beyond that, it was it was very well supplied. I mean, I remember at one point wondering how on earth they had gotten all this stuff up there because it was hard to get there just just running, not carrying anything. Mm -hmm. But they had this, they had part of the mountainside leveled out, which would have taken a fair amount of physical labor. Mm -hmm. um, they'd kind of built up a, a, almost a retaining wall to, to hold the dirt in place so that it would... Um, so that they would have this flat area and then mm -hmm. they had a tent set up but it was probably like a six-man tent mm -hmm. and then outside of the tent they had uh gray plastic tarps lying on the ground and then they had some gray tarps hanging in the trees above the tarp so it almost was like a sheltered patio mm -hmm. <laughs> and um they had like a little propane gas um stove set mm -hmm. up um, they had upturned five-gallon buckets to sit on. So at this point, he's he's settling with you, I, I guess, in terms of the knife's down. He's let you talk to his wife. So, it, I mean, it happened almost seamlessly. I mean, this was 
very clearly planned out. As soon as she hugged me, she, like with her arms around me, walked me inside of the tent and zipped up the door, uh, closed. And I mean, I didn't know what he was doing at that point. I just knew that she had brought me inside the tent. She sat me down on this upturned bucket. There was all sorts of bedding and pillows lying on the ground in there. And I remember there was this little small blue plastic basin tub Mm -hmm. that she had brought in and she took my shoes off and she put my feet in the water. And I just, I mean, I remember just being hunched over and just crying, not paying too much attention to what Mm -hmm. she was doing. Um, But then I remember she started to reach for my, my buttons on my pajamas Mm -hmm. to try to take them off. And, uh, I, I mean, I was, I was very shy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, definitely was not comfortable with her doing that. I remember just grabbing hold of my pajamas, um, clamping my elbows down next to my torso so that she, she couldn't take them off. And I remember she kept trying and I remember just crying and asking her, why was she doing this? She didn't have to, she kept saying she needed to sponge bathe me. She needed to clean me. I remember telling her I wasn't dirty. I'd showered last night before I went to bed. Um, and I just, I remember just asking her to leave me alone, begging her to leave me alone and she wouldn't stop. And I remember finally at one point she became so frustrated with me that she said to me that if I didn't let her undress me and sponge bathe me, she would have Emmanuel, the man who had kidnapped me, come in and he would rip my clothes from me. And I remember no matter how much I didn't want her to undress me, I really did not want him to come anywhere near me. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, I told her that if she really wanted me to change, I could change myself. And I was a big girl and um, that I could do it myself. So she finally passed me this long robe. It was like a tunic robe. It wasn't like one you wrap around yourself. You had to pull it on over your head. And um, I put that on and then I took off my pajamas underneath. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right. So uh, are you thinking about what's going to happen next at this point? Are you aware of his intentions or was that still unclear? I still at that point had no idea what was going to happen next. And I, I mean, I just, it was so such a contrast, such a stark contrast from the life that I had led even up until just a few hours earlier. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just couldn't even imagine why this, I mean, they were, they were a couple, why this man and this woman would want to kidnap me, a 14 year old girl. Um, I just, and then to make me wear this strange tunic, I mean, why? What could they possibly want from me? What could they possibly want from my family? How how long in that space of time was it before um, you started experiencing him trying to force himself on you and those sort of things? Was it? Oh, did it was immediately. Least, oh, I, I was thinking these guys might have at least you know, I, knowing some of the story, I didn't realize it was so fast. I mean, he never verbatim said this. Uh, to me, but I heard him try to plan other kidnappings. So 
I know he did the same for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but that she needed to be ready for me there. She needed to have this basin of water where she was going to wash me and clean me and essentially prepare the lamb for slaughter, um, prepare me for him. And as soon as she was done with that, I mean, there would be next to no talking done. Um, there'd be no, I mean, as soon as she was done, she would leave the tent, she would go out and he would come in. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as she was done, she picked up my pajamas, picked up my underwear, picked up my shoes, got up and walked out of the tent. Um, and as soon as she was out of the tent, he walked into the tent. He had changed out of the dark sweat clothes that he had worn, uh, when he kidnapped me. And, um, then he, uh, then he had put on a long tunic, just like the one that I'd been forced to wear. And, um, then he came in and he knelt down next to me. And honestly, I wasn't paying too much attention just because I, uh, I mean, I'd just been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most shocking thing, more, more than what I could have ever anticipated had just happened. So I wasn't really paying a whole ton of attention to what he was saying and what he was doing right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember very clearly thinking that I needed to pay attention to what he had to say because um, there might be some clue or some hint as to how I could escape or why he was doing this or how I could get a message to my family, something. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. My computer is about to die. Let me just no, grab no, my... No, no. Right. You take your time. Let me grab my power cord. Of course. Thanks again, by mm-hmm. the way. I really do appreciate you uh, talking with me like this because it is... Um, I'm a bit no. I don't want to say the wrong thing if I'm honest with you. Do you know what I mean? Um, Honestly, if there was ever someone to mess up with, it would be me. Because I okay, I appreciate I'm that. Really not. I have been asked every question you can be asked. Okay, and I don't well, get offended that easy. Well, I'm coming from the right place. Just so you know, I really do want to be respectful. Um, and yeah, like in terms of you being in this situation, you're describing. Um, you're in this tent and this man is saying these things to you and I'm trying to put myself in your head here. You're 14 years old and you're in shock about what's just happened. But then on the other hand, you're trying to pay attention and focus on what he's telling you. And I am assuming not long after that is when the first um, time happens where he forces himself on you. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to ask certain questions and make you feel uncomfortable. I'm sure you've had it, like you say, you've had it all before. I, I guess, um, what do you feel comfortable sharing from that? And, and, and how, how was that that night? Um, so, I mean, I'm, I, am, I am perfectly fine to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually feel like it's pretty important to talk about it because for so many victims, there is so much shame involved, even though at the end of the day, there's only one person to blame and that's the perpetrator every time i mean it just it doesn't matter what clothes you wear or clothes you don't wear doesn't matter where you go doesn't matter if you're drunk or you're sober at the end of the day it's the person who decides to rape whose fault it is Mm -hmm. so um i'm i'm fine to talk about it um and it was terrifying i mean i remember sitting there and 
kind of picking up from where I left off, uh, thinking that I need to listen to what he had to say uh, so I could find some clue or some hint as to why this was happening, how I could escape. And I really only heard one thing. And my guess is that it was probably the worst thing that he could have said, or the worst thing in my opinion that he could have said. And that's when he said that um, I was now his wife. And I mean, this just seemed like something, I don't know, straight out of crazy. <laughs> he, had, he said he already claimed someone else as his wife. Mm -hmm. I was young enough to be his daughter, maybe even his granddaughter. I mean, I was 14. I hadn't even, you know, I barely hit puberty. Like, I hadn't even had a period yet. Uh -huh. Like, why would someone marry a child or claim claim a child as as their wife? How could they do that? I remember just being so disgusted and just shocked and grossed out. I remember just screaming out, no. And he looked at me and he said, if you ever scream like that again, I'll kill you. And I remember telling him then that he had to realize this, this wasn't okay, that he had no legal authority to do that, that I was still a child, that I was only 14, that um, I couldn't even say yes, even if I wanted to. I mean, I remember I got so desperate to give myself some more time in hopes of someone rescuing me, I finally got to the point of, after giving every excuse that I could possibly give, I finally got to the point of saying, well, well, we should at least get to know each other first. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> that's Just trying to buy any time at just, all. Yeah. Just any time, anything. And nothing that I said made him pause or stop. Um, except, well, except when I told him that I hadn't even had a period yet, he stopped and he yelled out to, um, the woman, he called her Hepzibah and he said, Hepzibah, you know, she hasn't had a period. Is it still okay? And, um, she yelled back. Yeah, it's still okay. And, uh, at that point I was just like, what is, what's still okay? And I remember just having this thought come to my mind. And then he kept saying over and over, it's now time to consummate our marriage. And I just remember thinking, okay, first of all, you need to stop saying we're married because we're not and consummate. What does he even mean by that? Consummate mm -hmm. our marriage. And, uh, that's when I kind of had this thought of what he, what he could mean. And I remember thinking he means sex. He means raping me, but that can't happen to me. That those things don't happen in my world. Those things, they happen on the news. They happen to people that I don't know. And I mean, naively, I thought they happen to, you know, people who are out partying, people who are women who, you know, aren't wearing clothes or who are walking down dark alleyways by by themselves. They don't happen to little girls asleep in their bed in, at home. Uh -huh. And uh, I mean, I found out that, yeah, it does happen because it just, it just didn't matter what I said. 
Uh, he forced me on the ground. I mean, I thought that if I rolled onto my stomach, I mean, I thought I was pretty naive. I thought sex could only happen in one position where mm -hmm. I thought both people, I thought like the actual, like anatomy of sex, people had to be facing each other. So I remember in my little 14 year old mind thinking that if I rolled onto my stomach that he couldn't rape me. And of course that wasn't true. Um, I, I remember just, just begging and pleading and crying and being in so much pain. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it just, it just didn't matter. I mean, even while he was raping me, I remember just asking him, can he be done? Can he be done? Can he be done? And he'd just be like, Oh, not yet. Not yet. Just a little more. And, um, then when he was finished, he just kind of stood up and smiled and turned around and walked out of the tent like it wasn't a big deal. But for me, I it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. I mean, like physically I was in a lot of pain, but I mean, I'd also just been kidnapped. Um, I had just had my life ripped away from me. I, I was scared. I was alone. I was... I, I, nothing in my life had prepared me for that moment. I don't think there was anything that could have prepared me for what happened. Truth be told though. Um, I mean, I, I just, and at that point, I don't actually know if I fell asleep or if I passed out, but one of the two happened and my next memory was opening my eyes and there he was again, and this time he was wrapping a piece of metal cable around my ankle and then not just twisting bolts into place, but crushing them into place so that I couldn't escape no matter what. And that metal cable was connected to that first metal cable that I saw strung between the two trees. So it was just, um, I could sort of slide the little cable I was bolted to along mm -hmm. this longer cable and I could reach, you know, I could reach about 12 feet. And that was about it. So at this point, you've passed out. And at the exact time, I'm guessing, judging by the time scale you gave me earlier, your family are now waking up and realizing you're not there. or Because your sister was kind of aware, if I'm right in thinking, that you'd gone. So she... Um, she said that she watched, that she said that she was awake when I was kidnapped, mm -hmm. that she watched and that she heard him take me out of our bedroom and she kept waiting to hear the alarm go off as well. Um, so she thought he was still in the house mm -hmm. uh, for a long time. We had this old grandfather clock and it goes off every 15 minutes. And she said she heard the grandfather clock go off twice. So probably a half hour had passed and that's when she uh, she had this, like it was her blanket, it was her blankie that she had from when she was a baby. She, she had wrapped it, not just around her shoulders, but even over her head. And she had to um, cross the top of our staircase uh, downstairs to go to my parents' room. My parents' room was on the other side of the house. Mm -hmm. She said she still thought that he was maybe in the house because she had never heard, she never heard a door open. She never heard the alarm go off. Um, but she went in and she first went to my dad's side and then she went around to my mom's side. 
And she woke my parents up and she said, Elizabeth is gone. And my parents were like, what are you, what are you talking about? Elizabeth isn't gone. And so she said, she's, she's gone. And so my parents got up to go check. And I mean, cause my sister and I, we, sh- we shared a bed. Like she's not the best person to share a bed with. She hogs the covers, yeah. hogs the space. She's a hot <laughs> sleeper. Like she kicks. And so it wouldn't have been that uncommon for me to, I don't know, go into my baby brother's room who he slept in the crib, but there was also a little bed in there that sometimes I'd go and sleep in there because I got sick of being kicked or I'd go down into the kitchen and sleep on the sofa. So my parents started going around and checking um, all the bedrooms, all the rooms. And my little sister said, you're not going to find her. A man came and took her. And she was almost nine years old. She was still eight. She was almost nine years old at the time. And my mom ran into the kitchen and we had a, like a bank of lights. Like, like it was multiple lights all on the same switch and you could just like slam your whole hand against them and all the lights would come on. Mm-hmm. And so my mom ran into the kitchen and slammed her hand against this bank of lights and her eye went straight to that one narrow kitchen window and she saw how the screen had been cut. And that's when she just yelled to my dad, Ed, call 911. Elizabeth is gone. Someone has taken her. Jeez. So it was actually really not that long after I had been taken. I mean, a half hour, probably maybe maybe 45 minutes, an hour at the most before my parents knew that I was gone. And this is the thing. In, in the UK, um, This, uh, I guess unless people have stumbled across um, some of the videos made about this story but um we people might not understand but this was huge news in america i mean this was everywhere people connected with you because you had such an angelic uh, perfect little face that i think um you know it was everywhere on the media and the news um this was the biggest missing child case since charles Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped i mean this was the biggest man search manhunt ever ever put on for anyone um i mean within the first day they had over ten thousand volunteers coming to search for me i mean just Uh and it was it's been interesting because uh i mean i've spoken with my brothers and my parents since obviously but my older brother i remember talking to him and he was just like He's like, it was just amazing. I mean, there were so many people. People showed up who looked like they could be kidnappers themselves, but they showed up and they were honestly, sometimes he was just like, you just could not judge anyone because everyone was there to help and they would have done anything to bring you home. He's like, there was not a tree that did not have your a, a light blue balloon on it for you or a blue ribbon on it for you or a missing poster. I mean, everybody's windows of their houses had your face in it. Every light pole had your face on it. Every grocery store had your missing poster on it. He's like, you know, it seemed like a day didn't go by without your face being all over the news or newspapers or magazines. He was like, it was, it was everywhere. It's amazing how you weren't that far away, and yet they, the, all those people still were so unfortunate not to find you, um, despite trying so hard. Um, 
Did, did you ever re- uh, find out why they managed to... Was it just because he was so well hidden in that strange place that he'd managed to get you? It was very, very difficult to get to. Years later, uh, I mean, when I first wrote my my book, my story that kind of tells the whole story of what happened, um, I did this big interview with Meredith Vieira on mm-hmm. NBC. And... Um, they wanted to hike back to where I was held captive. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And they're like, how far is it? I was like, it's like, it's just over three miles. I was like, but just so you know, it's very difficult to get to. Like, it's not, it's not an easy hike. And Mm -hmm. the camera crew, they were, they were so nice, but they kind of were joking around. They're like, no, it's okay. He just ran a marathon last week. I think he'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay. I was like, but just, you know, just, just be prepared. Like it, it'll be a challenge. So I'm like, no, we'll, we'll be fine. Promise. And so I was like, okay. So the next day we go to hike up to where I was held captive at. And, um, I mean, it was hard. You for, you wade up through this stream, this muddy, muddy stream. And then you're fighting your way through brush and scrub oak and poison ivy and stinging nettle. And I mean, no one in their right mind would fight mm-hmm. their way through all of this to get up there. And then once you finally get up to this uh, small, tiny little valley area, um, you have to then go almost straight up this mountainside. I mean, it's incredibly steep. Mm-hmm. And you almost have to get on your hands and feet to, mm-hmm. to make it up without falling, without sliding down it. Um, I mean, it is a it is a rugged, hard climb. And so <laughs> we got, I don't know, maybe halfway. And finally, one of the camera crew members just sat down. They're like, I can't go any farther. I'm done. And, wow. Uh, that, pro- that proves everything, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I was like, it's fine. But the rest of them were like, okay, we got to keep going. And they're like, can you just tell us where it's at? And because we want to get your reaction walking in here. And I was like, well, I was like, this is not my first time back. I've been back here. Like I had to show the FBI. I've had to show, like I showed my parents, like I've been back here before. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't, it doesn't bother me coming back to this place. Um, this place yep, was, yep. didn't hurt me. It was the people that hurt me. That's a very strong-minded approach because you know a lot of people wouldn't feel that way. So credit to you. Um, going going back to the, the 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 falling asleep at camp while this big search has been conducted for you, did he settle into some sort of new normal for you pretty quickly, or was it did it start off different and then t- find its own way of becoming normality? No, I think it. I mean, he kept. He kept pretty in character the whole time that I was with him. Mm. Um, he he was very he was highly manipulative and mm. very very devious. And he had found that the best way to manipulate people and to get what he wanted and to justify anything that he did was through religion. And I mm. think probably most people would agree that. To some extent, religion has always been uh, a sensitive subject. Certainly in America at that time, it was a very sensitive subject. I mean, 9-11, the Twin Towers, 
that had only happened not even a whole year earlier. That had happened eight months, nine months earlier before. Mm -hmm. And so it was still, it was still pretty fresh. Um, What was his faith in particular? (laughs) His faith was doing what he wanted and saying God told him to do it. So he'd say things to me like, like, you should be grateful that I took you because I rescued you. God chose you for me. I didn't want to do this, but Mm -hmm. God told me to do it because you're special. And the rest of the world is so wicked that he needed someone who was pure to come and be my wife and have my children so that we can, there can still be goodness in this world. Um, I mean, that's how he, he justified everything. And he'd say things like, um, but you know what, for as innocent as you are, even you are still so wicked and it, and you're so prideful. You need to know that you are no better than anyone else. So God has told me that you need to experience, um, you need to experience alcohol. You need to experience smoking cigarettes. You need to experience um, going naked all day. You need to experience what it is for a husband and wife to have a loving, intimate relationship. So what we're going to do is you are going to watch Hepzibah and I have, have sex the, real, the way a real couple makes love. And then when we're done, it's going to be your turn. And if you don't do this, first of all, God has commanded you to do this. And if you don't, you won't get any food and you won't get any water and you won't get to sleep. You won't get to do anything until you follow through with what we tell you. And so that was really how he manipulated everyone. That's how he got exactly what he wanted. I mean, just everywhere he went. I mean, the guy was clearly a sick person, evil, just pure evil. And um, as as these weeks went by, what what was what is sort of a normal day like waking up at the camp, and how do you know your food, that sort of thing, and how they talk to you? Um, I mean, I didn't get food unless they gave food to me. I didn't get water unless they gave water to me. Um, they would. I mean, he. He really uh, lived this facade to the full extent of him being this holy man, this prophet. Um, he lived it as as much as he could because it was such a powerful tool in, uh, I mean, in manipulating everyone and justify what he did. And that's how he... That's how he really manipulated his his wife, his real wife, not me. Um, because I think that she was raised very religious. She'd been very religious her whole life. She came from an abusive first marriage. She had six kids in her first marriage. And then when she met him, he was the one that was telling her that she was special. He was the one that was telling her that she was Uh, that she was good and that she was righteous and that God valued her as a daughter and that, um, 
that she had a special place in heaven waiting for her, but that she would have to bear many trials that would be hard for her in order for her to um, obtain this, this special place. And that's how he controlled her because she, it was easier for her to believe what he told her than to admit the truth because to admit the truth, she would have to admit that she is in fact a very evil person um, to allow what was happening to me to go on. And so it was just easier for her to believe what he said. And so she did. And um, that's why she was able to step aside and let him rape me and why she allowed him to, you know, withhold water or food from me. And so an average day um, would begin, I mean, he'd probably wake up and, and rape me. And then he would like open up the Bible and he'd say, now it's time for us to, you know, learn the word of God. And so he'd read from the Bible and then, um, he'd say, okay, now we need to pray. And like, he'd read for a long time and then he'd pray for a long time. And honestly, sometimes like it was, it was long. I think I probably fell asleep a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time all of that was done, um, he would pull out the food, whatever food he deemed was okay for me to have. And, um, then he'd say that he needed to bless the food because, um, all food that we ate would, would be a sacrament. So then he would bless the food. Then I'd finally be allowed to eat whatever it was he gave me. And then um, the rest of the day would be filled with him talking. I mean, honestly, sometimes I thought maybe talking was worse than being raped. Because he would just go on and on and on forever. And uh, then... At some point, it was usually uh, necessary to get water, and we would have to hike down the steep, the steep part of the mountain where we were hiding that down to the smaller valley, and down probably half a mile to where this the stream came right up out of the ground, and that's where we would collect our water from, and we would collect them just in gallon jugs and. He had these two bags that he would tie the tops together and there'd be two gallons in front and two gallons in back. And then he'd sling them over um, his shoulder or or me. He'd have me carry it up and then we'd scramble back up to um, this hiding, this hidden camp. And he started to try to dig this underground house. I mean, I say underground house, but it's not like a house house. It's basically a big hole in the ground with... <laughs> Um, logs and branches thrown over the top to create a roof because he thought that eventually one day we would stay there year round. So sometimes he'd have me dig in this hole. Um, Sometimes he'd just sit and talk. Sometimes he'd rape me again. Sometimes he'd say that God had revealed new revelation to him and he'd thought of some new fantasy he wanted to act out. I don't know. I mean, 
was it was it was a pretty horrific time. Yeah, like I empathise with you so much. Like it, I can't imagine how bad that must have been. Um, being beholden as someone who's just such an evil, crazy person, and clearly just in love with himself. Um, it made me smirk a bit, I'll be honest, when you said he used to go on and on and on because I could really feel how mind-numbing this idiot's bullshit must have been for you to listen to. Uh, would, would it always be religious chat or would he talk about anything else that, uh, no, when he was prattling um, on? He would talk about whatever he wanted to. Um, he loved talking about like his life prior to him kidnapping me and sort of the different... I guess he did. He would tend to put a real, like his personal theology, theological spin on it, but um, he would kind of paint whatever he had experienced, you know, with religion or say how God led him here or God led him there. He got so drunk and had sex with so many women, and and it was God's you know gift to him for you know for all the future hardships he was going to have to go through or um so he did do it a lot but he was also actually very smart i mean he sat down and explained to me how our entire legal system worked um politics he talked to me about history um i mean of course it was a skewed skewed version of it but mm-hmm. he still talked about it uh, Did this man have a job before he just decided to abduct people? Or? Oh, he had multiple jobs, but probably one of um, his mo- most reputable jobs was he worked for a company called OC Tanner. I'd almost say the company's hobby mm. <laughs> is that they also do jewelry and they make Olympic rings. They make a lot of the Olympic medals. At least they did for the Salt Lake 2002 Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was, he had actually been a die cutter. Um, so he would help create the, the molds um, for these pieces of jewelry or medallions or mm-hmm. awards to, to be cast in. Um, so, I mean, he did have different jobs over the years. And that was probably one of his more uh, Mm -hmm. reputable jobs. Did you have any idea or did he mention why one day he decided to go and live in the woods? Like, because that is very strange for a start, isn't it? Uh, Well, I mean, it didn't start off just going from a house straight to the woods first. So it was the house Uh and then they went to um, a big fifth wheel trailer Mm-hmm. And then they downsized from that where he built, like, a, they called it a hand house. So it was like a little tiny house mm-hmm. on wheels that he and Wanda Barzi, the woman's real name, mm-hmm. um, that they would just walk and pull around behind them. And then they went from that to pulling a hand cart around. Mm-hmm. And then after that... uh that's when they went from the hand cart to the woods. And actually, initially, they had a teepee that they had set up. And then they decided that the teepee was too conspicuous and that they couldn't take me to the teepee. And so that's when they went even farther back up into the mountains um, and found this hidden secluded area where they then built this hidden campsite that they took me to. 
once they kidnapped me, we stayed at this this hidden camp for the first three, four months. Mm-hmm. And then um, fall started coming. And, I mean, it's cold in Utah. We have snow. There's a mm-hmm. reason why our license plates say greatest snow on earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's cold. Yeah, freezing. And we were not prepared in any way to survive a winter in the mountains. So... Um, they, he had this, he called it a lower camp. He called it the base camp that was much closer to the popular trail, um, that people would go on, um, that you had to go on before you took like this hidden cutoff trail that he'd used mm-hmm. to get back. So this base camp was much closer to that area. And so he moved us down there and, um, he started going down into Salt Lake almost daily to try to save enough money, beg. I mean, he called it, he called it ministering and he'd say that God's true disciples would recognize who he was and that they would give him money. And he'd only call uh, people who gave him money, uh, true disciples. And so he'd go down and he'd beg for money. Um, or as he liked to say, he'd minister for money, but about once a week that he would allow me to go down into Salt Lake and I was always fully covered. I mean, I still had to wear this long tunic. I had this headdress on um, that covered all my hair. And then I had a veil across my face. And then I had a second veil um, that was sheer that would still cover my eyes and, and my mouth area. And um, actually before though, that second veil, that sheer veil was put on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, he had taken me down into Salt Lake to try to figure out where we were going to go to next. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd gone to the public library and we were looking at maps of the United States. And that's when he decided that we should go to California for the winter. And, um, actually we were approached by a homicide detective in the library and, um, he he had approached my captor and he just said, you know, we've had some calls in and, um, you know, we just need to check. We need to check them out. Um, you know, who is this? Who is with you? Why is she with you? Why is she covered? All these kinds of things. And he was he was very convincing when he wanted to be. So he he's like, this is my daughter. You know, this is part of our religion. And the police officer said, well, can I convert to your religion for like 10 minutes just so I can see your face? So I can tell these people who are calling in about her that it's not, it's not who we're looking for. And my captain was like, I'm, I'm sorry, but no, even if you converted to our religion, you still wouldn't be allowed to see her face. The only people that will ever see her, her face are her family and her future husband. And that's it. And I'm sorry. It would be very disrespectful and degrading if I allowed you to see her face. And I mean, that homicide detective believed him and he turned around and he walked away. And I I mean, believe me when I say I wanted to scream, I wanted to be rescued. It was not fun. I did not want to stay with him. It was not a vacation, but for so many months, 
no one had been there to protect me. Mm-hmm. No one had been there to rescue me. No one had been there to stop him from doing anything he wanted to me. So when he would threaten me and say, I will kill you if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do. I will kill your family if you ever try to run away. If you ever do anything I don't want you to do. I I believed him. And he got to the point of feeling like he was invincible because he'd bring back missing posters and missing flyers and newspaper articles um, to this hidden campsite when he'd go down into Salt Lake for food. And he'd bring them back and he'd show them to me. And he'd laugh about them. And he'd say, the whole city is looking for you. But no one is ever going to find you because I have you. And it seemed like he was right. I mean, I remember there were times when there were helicopters that were so low, that were flying so low overhead that the trees would shake, that the tent would shake under the pressure from the wind that they would make. Um, I, I mean, I even remember one time hearing my name being yelled. Mm. And I mean, that time he had pulled out his knife and he said, if you say anything, I'll kill you. If anyone finds us, I'll kill them and it'll be your fault. You will have killed someone. And I just, I was never given a reason to doubt that he wouldn't follow through with everything that he said. So even though there was a homicide detective standing right in front of me and more than anything, I wanted to be rescued it didn't feel like he could rescue me. It didn't feel like he could save me or protect me mm-hmm. from these two monsters who had had me. Not to mention, as soon as this man approached, uh, as soon as this homicide detective approached the table, um, Wanda Barzi, who was sitting next to me, she had just clamped her hand down on my leg and it was like she was trying to tell me, remember what we're capable of and yeah. we will kill you. And if we don't kill you, we will send someone to kill you. So not only did I feel responsible to survive myself, but I also felt responsible to protect my family, which is why I didn't scream out. And everything up until that point had told you that this man was deadly, evil, and you know not worth taking the risk on. So I, I mean, he raped yeah. me every day. Yeah. Like, multiple times often mm-hmm. like he had no problem with holding water from me or food from me mm-hmm. i mean i went a week once without eating anything jesus i mean he had he had no problem doing those kinds of things to me so why would you question it yeah. I just, exactly. and i didn't have a relationship with the police i'd never come into contact with police before so how did i know mm-hmm. what they're capable of yeah you obviously you mentioned about being raped and about um, previously had a new fantasy that he wanted to enact. Uh, I'm scared to ask this, to be honest. Um, did you find a way to mentally, as best you could, try and switch off, or did it continuously get worse with these crazy new fantasies that he was having or whatever? Well, I finally got to the point of thinking that I'd hit rock bottom because every time I did, he'd find some new way to make me change my mind and think, well, that this is that definitely was not rock bottom. This is definitely rock bottom. And then it'd happen again mm. and it'd be worse. So I finally stopped thinking that I'd hit rock bottom. But I, I feel like the best way to describe uh, how I got through it was I, I became like, 
like a hard boiled egg um, that I created this hard shell outside myself that you could roll me around whatever direction and I'd be inside protected. But even if, um, even if that shell was broken, I still had this layer of insulation that, yeah, it was a lot more sensitive and it was much, much easier to damage. But even that area was not where I lived, that I was at my very core. And that's the best way I can describe how it was. That's a great way of describing it. Um, and at, all at this time as well, you're, you're, you're going through some extreme pain, but your family are also going through extreme heartache. Um, I'm sure you've talked to them since then. What was that experience like of that worry and just dread that they were going through? Um, I mean, my mom said that the only reason why she could get out of bed in the morning was because my baby brother would come in and he would tell her that he was hungry. And that was the only way she could get out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, that, I mean, he was, he was three years old when I was kidnapped. And so that's, that's how it, how it initially was, was being there just to keep my other siblings alive physically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of them were sent to live with relatives for the first initial few weeks because the FBI took over our home. They were, you know, collecting fingerprints. They were collecting hair. They were collecting everything they could. They took so many of my possessions into custody. Uh, Just the entire house just, I mean, just turned into... A crime scene. A a crime scene. And so a lot of my siblings were sent to live with friends and family. Um, My parents, they were put under immense pressure. And just, I mean, people said some truly awful things about my parents. That my parents had killed me. And that Mm. they had um, plastered my remains inside the walls of our home. Jesus. Um, That... My parents were the ones that killed me or they had sold me. Um, just just awful things. I mean, it got to the point that my dad had a, uh, a full-blown mental breakdown where he did have to be hospitalized. And wow. um, finally, my mom said she got to this point where she she didn't want to give up but she also could not continue the way that she was and she had five other young children that needed her mm-hmm. and so she said that she, I mean she wanted the searches to continue she wanted everything to continue but that she needed to still be a mother to her five other children and so she had to get to this point where where it was just easier to believe that I was dead than to uh, keep holding on to believing that I was alive and still try to be a mom to my other brothers and my sister when they were all going through a hard time too. Nothing pulls a family together like a mother's love. So credit to her and, and, and who could blame her for whatever she was thinking in that point, I guess. Did the police find any evidence that linked back to Emmanuel? No. 
Right. Uh, did they ever suspect the family or did they ever... I mean, yeah, they, they suspected my parents. I mean, that's that's as a police officer, and I don't blame them. I don't blame yeah. them for a second because most of the time when children are kidnapped, mm-hmm. uh, it's a family member. It's someone that you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. I think it's over 90% of the time. I think it's even higher than 90%, but it's someone that you know. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not a stranger, which is what makes my abduction different because it was a stranger. But so, yeah, absolutely. My family was, my parents were under scrutiny. My brothers were under scrutiny. I mean, my older brother, he's only like 18 months older than me. And then my brother, who's just after me, I mean, he's two and a half, three years younger than me. And they were put, they were giving them lie detector tests. I mean, my brother, my younger brother was 11 years old and they were having him take a lie detector test. I mean, they thought that he might be capable of, of doing something to me. I mean, and my sister, she was the only one that saw anything. So they interviewed her and interviewed her. They tried to hypnotize her. Um, they, <laughs> they just tried to get as much information out of her as they possibly could. And then the ironic thing is, is that it was actually her who realized who it was who kidnapped me. And when she finally did realize who it was, people didn't take her seriously. Um, she, I mean, she she said she'd been looking at the Guinness Book of World Records. And for whatever reason, she like flipped the page and there was this picture of this extremely muscular woman on there. And she looked at it and she was just like, I know who kidnapped Elizabeth. And so she went and told my parents who had kidnapped me And, um, I mean, he was a stranger. He had seen me one time. uh, Okay. Maybe twice before he'd seen me out school clothes shopping with my mom the fall prior to, uh, him kidnapping me. He had, he didn't ask for money from my mom. He asked for work. And at that point in time, he was clean shaven. His clothes looked clean. He just looked like he was, you know, down on his luck. And my mom, she never gives out information ever. But this one time she was like, why don't you call my husband? He might have some work that you could do. And so he called up my dad. And that was, I mean, at that point in time, just that one time seeing me out school clothes shopping with my mom, um, was he had decided that in there that I was the girl he wanted to kidnap. And, uh, he had only followed through calling my dad asking for work to find out where we lived. So my dad told him, yeah, you know, I have, um, some weeding and some roof work that I need done. Um, you know, why don't you come and do it? And so he came just one time to find out where we lived, did some weeding, did some, I think he did some roof work. I don't know. I, I mean, I was in junior high. I wasn't paying that much attention to him. Uh, when my mom went to pay him, he had said that his name was Emmanuel and my little sister had heard that. And then all those months later, honestly, it was probably, probably about a year later, maybe even longer when she opened up that Guinness book of world records that she was like, it was Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the one that came and took her. And she said that to my dad and my dad and a couple of my brothers went to the police station to try to get a police sketch done of him and they did the police sketch, but they didn't, they didn't want to release it or anything. They didn't really want to take this lead that seriously. And, um, then it was my dad and John Walsh from America's most wanted. He was the show host. And I mean, he has his own 
tragic story about his son, Adam Walsh, being kidnapped and murdered. Um, but they were on Larry King Live, um, uh-huh. and they were the ones that event that showed this picture that said who he was. And that was really a turning point in the case because every, and everyone, the police, the FBI, they were all a bit upset with them for releasing this image, releasing this, um, detail that it could be this person. Cause they're like, no, it's not him. Like, no, but actually that was really what led to me being rescued. Yeah. That, thank God that they did that then and ignored the FBI. Um, how, how did that lead to the rescue and the, and the freedom for you? I believe it was actually some of Brian Mitchell's family members, because that's his real name. That was Emmanuel's real name was Brian Mitchell. Um, mm-hmm. Some of his family members saw it. Saw, I don't know if they saw the actual episode. I'm not 100% sure of the exact details, but to my understanding, um, some of his family members saw what was going on. I think maybe it was a sister Mm-hmm. And they called in and they gave a real picture and they said, oh, yeah, um, lately, he, I mean, nobody's seen him for a little while, but the last few sightings of him, because he'd really cut off all ties with his family, um, you know, he he was with two women. It wasn't just one woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an older woman and then there was a younger woman, but none of us know who she is. Um, and meanwhile, we had been in California. We ended up hitchhiking back to Salt Lake. And, um, that's when people, I think it was about three different individuals who called the police within less than about five minutes of each other (laughs) saying that they think that they just, they found, they think they saw Brian Mitchell and that Mm -hmm. they think that they just saw Elizabeth Smart. And ultimately that's what led to my rescue. Yeah, can you kind of describe for me what those uh, moments were like when you finally knew you were safe? Um, So honestly, I did not know that I was safe until uh, after I'd been separated from my captors, after I'd been taken to the police station. Um, Mm. I'd actually been handcuffed on the way over, which made me think that I was in trouble. Um, But when I finally made it to the police station, I was brought into this little room and they... They didn't unhandcuff me, and I still didn't know what was happening. I didn't know I was safe until the door just burst open and my dad came running into the room. And it was when he started hugging me that I didn't know what was going to happen next, but I at least knew that it was going to be okay because my dad was there and he was never going to let anyone hurt me again the way these two people had hurt me the last nine months. The emotion must have been unbelievable in that moment to know that your dad had you and everything was okay. What was he like? He was crying. I mean, I didn't even, it happened so fast from when he burst open the door to him hugging me. It honestly took a second for me to respond. It it took a second for the dots to connect Mm -hmm. um, because I just, I didn't know what was coming next. I mean, I remember thinking that if they thought that I was innocent, wouldn't they have taken me home? Wouldn't they have let me call my parents at least? Wouldn't they let me talk to my parents or at least tell me what was going to happen next? But they hadn't said anything. I had been brought into this little small room. I actually thought it was a cell. I don't actually think it was a cell though now. Um, It was just this little tiny room. And um, I mean, it seemed to have this really big, heavy metal door. 
and I, uh, I just didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And so when my dad almost appeared out of thin air, um, it was like, it was a pretty big shock. The way you're describing it, like it just shows the state of mind he had you in, like at that point of just never knowing what is safety, like never trusting, you know, and I guess the police didn't help because it doesn't sound like they were that reassuring to you. When the police actually intervened and you actually had that little moment where they were taking you away from them, um, I'm assuming he tried to talk his way out of it as he always did. Um, when they first started questioning us, I was in the middle and I had a captor on either side of me. And okay. then um, then they separated me from them and they mm -hmm. started to question me on my own, which is when I eventually told them who I was, when I admitted okay. who I was. But I was already separated from my captors, so I didn't hear the ongoing questions um, or dialogue that was going on between my captors and the police at mm -hmm. that point. And we were put into separate cars and... Um, yeah, I, I didn't see them again. How long between that moment and the trial for this guy to be convicted was there? How many years or months? <laughs> it, was, it was almost a decade. It was eight years. Wow. Why yeah. so long? <sighs> I was... I will say this. I, I hope that the UK courts are better than the American courts because it's not a victim-friendly place. Mm. Um, I can respect uh, the belief that innocent until proven guilty, but in my case, I didn't feel like there was anything to prove. I felt like it was already proven. It was obvious. It was evident. He never tried to deny it. He admitted it from the beginning. I mean... He was caught red-handed. Red exactly. What more do they want? This is the easiest case <laughs> in the world. Um, but I mean, his defense was always whether or not he was, um, it was like a plea of insanity, but it was whether he was, he needed to be, uh, coherence, not the right word. Mm-hmm. I get but, you. Um, they, they, like, they do this though, don't they? These criminals, they, they, they do sick things which are well thought out, well planned out. Clearly, they're not like, you know, mentally ill because they've managed to, you know, plan all this and done it for months. And then yeah. they play insanity and it's like, this is bullshit. But they, so he was at a state hospital for a long time and they were always like, well, we need to make sure that he is, uh, why can I not think of that word? This is almost, this is embarrassing. No, it's it cool. It's cool. Don't, no, but it, they basically want to know these people but are fit to go to court, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so, well, he was fit to do the crime, so I'm pretty sure he's all right. You know right? what I mean? Thank yeah. you. Joke. Um, but it went on so long that actually it was before the statute of limitations in Utah was done away with on sex crimes, mm -hmm. um, and so it was still standing. And, uh, or at least the crimes that he was getting um, charged with, it was still standing. So almost five years uh, had expired. And I remember getting a phone call from the U.S. attorney asking me to come and meet with him. And I went and met with him. And he asked me if I wanted to um, leave the case in the state courts or if I wanted to move it to the federal courts. 
And he told me that if it remained in the state courts, that um, he probably, you know, he they wouldn't just let him go. He would probably go to a state hospital, but eventually they would release him. Um, they would be obligated to release him because he was never charged with anything. Or did I want to press federal charges? And I was like, of course I want to press federal charges. Jesus. Um, and so then it took time for um, the federal courts to get their case together. But, I mean, also his defense. I mean, they were great at able to great at able to drag their feet. Um, mm-hmm. And it was always about whether or not he would be mentally sound to stand trial, to understand everything that was going on. But, I mean, his ultimate master plan, which actually worked pretty well for him. I mean, had it stayed in the state courts, it would have worked completely for him. Mm-hmm. Was he just didn't cooperate with anyone. He just ignored everyone. He wouldn't mm-hmm. speak to anyone. I mean, only when he saw benefit for himself would he do something. Which So, in these cases... He saw the greatest benefit to himself was not cooperating, not allowing a case to be put together against him. And uh, I mean, so it took a long time. I think it's ironic that they're asking if he's going to be able to understand how the courts work when he was sitting explaining them to you in in the camp. Uh, yeah. He knows fine well how they work. He'd, he'd tell you a thing or two by the sounds of it. <laughs> um, and what you're, yeah, I, I did see a clip of him online singing in the court definitely trying to play act to come across as uh, mentally unstable as possible. I know you said you never seen him again. Does that mean you didn't see him in court? Oh, um, I saw him in court. I mean, okay. I didn't see him. As a child again. So Yes. Yeah, so by the time you see him again, um, you're now a, a grown woman. Um, still a young woman, but a, a grown woman. What was that feeling like now? I didn't know how I was going to react. I wasn't curious to see him. I was curious how I was going to feel seeing mm-hmm. him because I just I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if he was going to stand up to me and stand and turn and look at me and start like yelling repentance at me, like repent ye, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, he did that to other people before. So was he going to do that to me or... I, I just didn't I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to anticipate. Yeah, I was nervous, but then he walked in and he he'd walk in and he he'd always have his eyes closed and he'd be shackled and he'd be holding his head up like like he was a martyr and he'd be singing and they'd be they'd be hymns, they'd be religious songs that he'd be singing. Every time that he'd walk in, I mean, you would hear him start as soon as the doors opened up. That's when he'd start singing. And then you'd actually hear him stop singing once he'd been taken out of the out of the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, he would sing and sing until the judge would call him to order. The judge would call him to order again. And then finally he'd say, if you cont- continue singing, you know, you will be excused from the courtroom. You'll be taken to another room where you will be able to watch Uh, court proceedings on a monitor where you can no longer disrupt the courtroom and that's exactly what he wanted so he kept singing and so he'd get escorted out every day you know i've had people do bad things to me when i say them there's a 
feeling in the pit of my stomach where I'm like, oh, I, I, I feel awful just even looking at them. Was there anything like that? Or were you just ready for this? My feelings were, were of disgust, really. Oh. Um, just this gross man, this gross old man. I mean, oh. they're just, I was just disgusted by him and... I was disgusted by his antics. And as I sat there listening, I mean, his defense, they had so many witnesses come up. And most of the time I'd sit there and I'd listen to the witnesses and I'd think, how on earth is this helping his case any? I mean, all you hear is person after person basically testifying how this man has destroyed every life he's ever come into contact with and how manipulative he is and how deceitful he is and just how evil he is. How can this be helping your case? I mean, honestly, I lost a lot of respect actually for his full defense team. The only person that walked away with his defense from his defense team that I had any respect left for was his lead um attorney who at the very end of the trial came up to me and he said elizabeth he was like i want you to know that i did the very best job that i could and he's like not because i believe that this man is innocent or because i believe that this man should walk free but because i never want for this to be called a mistrial and for him to have a chance to appeal it and you have to go through this again do you think that was the truth or was he saying that for his own conscience no, I think that was the truth. For him, I think that was absolutely the truth. Makes you wonder what these lawyers go through mentally at night when they sleep and they realize that sometimes they they do get people off. You know what I mean? And it you know, these you know, people who defend child killers and all sorts of things out there, I don't know how they do it. Um to be fair, it's a hard job. You know, I, I get that. Um Looking back at that 10-year period, roughly, between you being the girl who was found to being the woman in the court, mentally, how did you rebuild yourself after that? Because that must have been, you know, you're such a great speaker, you come across such a confident, strong, and, and happy person, and to have been through something worse than most people can ever even imagine, I just, how did you do it? I mean, it didn't happen overnight, it was definitely a... A big period of adjustment it was such a shock to come home and and think that my life would go back to the way it was before I was kidnapped and all of a sudden just everywhere I went people recognizing me people hugging me people talking to me like they knew me people telling me their worst experiences of their life people confiding in me about what's mm-hmm. happened to them Um, It was a major adjustment, one that it was honestly was hard to make because I still wanted to go back to being who I was before I was kidnapped. I still wanted to go back to being a wallflower. I mean, I I liked not not being recognized. I liked just blending in with everyone else. That was perfectly fine with me. You know, it made me always sort of double question people's motives. Why are they being nice to me? Why are they being my friend? Um, Why is he asking me out on a date? Um, Why, you know, why am I like, why am I being singled out? Is it because I did something like I did well on an assignment or I, um, 
you know, did like an, an exceptional job on something or, or is it just because of my past? Right. Um, so, I mean, there was definitely a lot, a lot, a long time that I just struggled first of all, Mm -hmm. but also that I had a lot of doubts and I had a lot of questions. And ultimately I got to this point where I was like, I can never go back to who I once was as much as I may want to go back to who I was before I was kidnapped. I mean, Brian Mitchell, Wanda Barzi, they took things away from me that I'll never get back. They took nine months of my life that I will never get back. Um, and, you know, now coming back, I'll, I'll never just be able to go back to blending in. Um, I will never just be able to be me again. Um, so... I might as well get on with embracing this and I might as well do something with it. I mm. might as well try to, to make a difference. And, and I mean, I know what it's like to be raped. I know what it's like to be sexually abused. I know what it's like to be kidnapped and to be hurt and to have your life ripped away from you. I mean, I know exactly what that's like. And initially, and I think probably most victims would agree that when these crimes happen to you, you feel like you're the only one. It feels like it's extremely isolating. It feels like there's not another human being in this world that could possibly understand what you've been through physically, but also mentally and emotionally and all of the aftermath that carries along with it. Um, but then as I you know, was approached by so many people, I started to realize, wow, actually, I am not alone. Mm-hmm. There's actually so many people who have maybe not the exact same story, but a very similar story. Mm-hmm. Maybe this needs to be talked about a little bit more. Maybe there is something that I can actually do to help cause and create change. And that was kind of the beginning of it. Yeah, I've got to credit you for taking such a negative and spinning it into the as big a positive as you could um and you know even even someone like me see a, a big tattooed guy and people would think you know this could never happen to me and um it i mean that what you went through was never happened to me obviously but like i had a near miss when i was a child with a babysitter who uh was rubbing himself and offered to expose himself to me and you know um it can happen to anyone and uh uh, obviously women especially um but yeah I've, I've got so much admiration for you and to to go through what you went through is is bad enough but to then be turned into a celebrity which is something you as you said you want to be a wallflower you never wanted to be a, uh, the, the the person everyone was looking at and then i guess dealing with not just all of the everyone knowing you which i know from experiences is can be awful sometimes but also people feeling sorry for you, um, which is a given now. And I don't know, was that uh, hard to adjust to as well? Because some people don't always want that. You know what I mean? Some people just want to get on with it. I haven't really let um, people feeling sorry get to me too much because I understand where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes from a place of genuine concern. Um, it comes from a place of love. It comes from a place of um, heartache. I mean... 
I I am to the point where I I cannot watch, uh, or it's very very rare that I watch any kind of crime documentary. Um, that I I don't want to watch. Um, I mean, <laughs> even movies as simple as Finding Nemo, the yeah, the Disney Pixar movie. Um, mm-hmm. I don't like that movie. I don't want to watch it because I mean Nemo is kidnapped, mm-hmm. but then it makes it look like he has this great time and makes all these friends and and it has a happy ending. And that's not how kidnapping really is. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. go away and I didn't make good friends and um, it wasn't just this great time and this great adventure and um, it was a horrific experience. So now I'm like, I just want to watch happy, easy, stupid stuff that I can turn <laughs> on and turn off at any yeah. point. Um, I mean, like, I, I don't even know how many times I watched the British Baking Show. Probably a thousand. Yeah. Um, I mean, with with TV being the way it is now, it is. Um, I mean, Netflix. Let's be honest; it's ninety nine percent crime documentaries. So um, it must be really difficult for you in that regard. It's, and I guess I never would have considered that. Um, well, and I mean, I just there's enough darkness in the world, and you know, now I have my own nonprofit, the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, and I have so many people who have shared and disclosed their stories to me that I don't I don't need to fill up the rest of my time with that mm-hmm. kind of darkness because I've already first of all I've already lived it and yep. then um, I also work in it so in my relaxation time I don't want to fill it up with that anymore and that I mean that even extends to like game of thrones I mean violence and rape I mean my husband was watching and sometimes you know, I sit and I'd watch it with them, and sometimes I just be like, I can't, like, I can't watch mm-hmm. this anymore. Like, you need to turn on something else. And I mean, mm. like, he's a good sport, and so I was like, yeah. He's like, no problem. He's like, what do you want to watch, Friends? I'm like, yeah, that's great. Let's turn on Friends. <laughs> um, in that um, recovery period, I was wondering, did you get um, any professional help, um, counseling, and etc. So when I first got home, um, I mean, the day after I was rescued, I was brought to the Children's Advocacy Center in Salt Lake, where I was told that I needed to speak with these two uh, psychiatrists. Mm. And so in my mind, I was like, well, if they're psychiatrists, that means therapy. And uh, so they're going to try to help me or or fix me. But I went in there and um, like my... I didn't really want my parents in there with me um, Mm -hmm. because I didn't want them to know what had happened Mm -hmm. to me. Um, But I was in there with these two middle-aged guys, men, men, um, that I didn't know. And Mm -hmm. um, they were both clearly religious, which, I mean, good for them for practicing their religion. Um, And then I was left alone in there with them. I had just been taken out of a situation where I was, you know, abused extensively and sexually by a middle-aged religious man. And so then I was put, I felt like I was put right back into that situation. And they started to ask me questions about what happened, what it was like. But, um, I mean, being who I was, I was still very shy at that time. I was still very awkward and self-conscious and 
Um, that didn't j- change just because I had been kidnapped. Uh, and they started saying, okay, well, what happened? And just, just as a, an example of what it went like, um, I'd be like, well, yeah, he hurt me. And they'd be like, well, how did he hurt you? And I'd be like, well, he molested me. And they'd be like, well, can you, you know, what did he do? And I was like, okay, well, he raped me. And they'd be like, well, you know, do you know what rape is? I was like, well, he, you know, forced himself on me. And they'd be like, well, can you explain it to us with the right body parts until it was this whole like <laughs> pathway of getting to finally saying he forced his penis inside my vagina multiple times, multiple times a day. And, um, for me, that was pretty traumatic saying that I'm, I mean, I, like I felt awkward saying the words penis and vagina anyways, but (laughs) then saying it, admitting that that's what had happened to me, first of all, but then being alone with these two men, I mean, that was, that was pretty, that was pretty traumatic. And I like, of course, as an adult now, I've realized they were just trying to do their job. Everyone was trying to do the best that they could. But honestly, I don't think anyone had ever dealt with an experience like mine before. I don't think anyone really knew what a best practice was or what they should do. Um, And so that was awful. I had to go back two or three days all day being there with them and and I hated it. And by the time I was done with it, I just, I just remember thinking, I never want to speak to anyone about this ever again. I don't want to talk to a psychiatrist. I don't want to talk to anyone else about this. I just, I just don't want to talk about it. Yeah, you, you appreciate they were trying to do their job, but like someone wasn't thinking straight that day when they thought, I know what we'll do. We'll put her in. Well, you know, it, it's just a red flag, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. Was that was that the only time you were offered it? And was that the only time you had uh, psychiatric help? I mean, they actually weren't there to give me help. They really? were actually... So what my parents were told was that if they could get... Like, collect my story from me, they mm. could actually stand proxy for me in the trial. And so my parents... I mean, naturally wanting to protect me thought that it would be better for me if I didn't have to go and face my captors again. And that if these two men could stand as proxy for me, um, then that would be the best, the best choice. Mm -hmm. But I did not fully understand that at the time. Mm -hmm. And since they simply had the title of psychiatrist, I, um, I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do this again. And, um, I mean, my parents, they were incredibly worried about me and Mm. they actually went and they were seeing psychiatrists, they were seeing a therapist Mm. and they're just like, what do we do? What do we do? She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to see anyone. And the therapist was like, it's okay. It's okay. Just breathe. Like, let her make this choice on her own because it might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. But there may come a day when she's ready to talk about it. And you might be the one she decides to tell her story to. And you need to make sure you are in a place where you can listen to it. And you need to make sure that you are in a place to help her. Because both of you are going to be her biggest therapist. More than any other paid professional could ever be. So you need to make sure that both of you are in a place where you can help her. And so um, they continue to see a therapist. 
And now as an adult and actually an advocate for therapy, I think therapy is, is amazing. And I, I wish I had, uh, had a better understanding of it, you know, at, as a teenager after I was mm-hmm. rescued. Cause I think I just thought, Oh, you go to someone's office, you, you lie on their leather settee and you, and you just talk about the worst moments of your life <laughs> over and over and over until you get it out of your system. Yeah. I think that was my, as the extent of my understanding of therapy went. And now, um, I mean, there are like, that is not therapy. Okay. Um, so you've had it, you've had it since then, I would assume. Well, by the way, you're I, advocating for it. So I have learned so much more about it. And as I look okay. back on my life, I think that there are so many different forms of therapy. I mean, I find personally for me, the outdoors are incredibly healing for me. And I've spent a lot of time outside. And um, I love horses. And mm-hmm. I think there's something very therapeutic about being around horses. And I spend a lot of time around horses Honestly, my whole life, um, it's always been a passion of mine, even from before I was kidnapped. Um, I grew up playing the harp, and mm-hmm. uh, I played the harp again after I was kidnapped. And any time that I, I couldn't express how I felt or what I was thinking, I, I know it sounds cliche, but I always felt music was um, a way I could articulate my feelings without actually verbally articulating them. And, uh, so, I mean, I felt like I had a lot of different forms of therapy and as an adult, like I, I have gone and seen therapists. I mean, not necessarily related to, um, my kidnapping, but I mean, we've, we've, we've talked about it, but I mean, Mm -hmm. who doesn't need a little advice now and then, or who doesn't need a little pat on the back. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice knowing that you can say your deepest, darkest thoughts and they are not allowed to share it with anyone else. Yeah, and going back to the music, I mean, everyone needs something that soothes their soul. So, you know, it's good to have anything like that, isn't it? Um, I guess I guess the way I always pick you up from watching some of your interviews is I thought, um, you know, we all talk to ourselves and we all have that inner conversation. And I thought you must be very kind to yourself and very good to yourself. And uh, because to get through something like that, I mean... Uh, it it kind of it just blew my mind how together you are and what a whole person you are and clearly the family helped. But um, do you think that's part of it? The way you have that inner conversation, do you think you're kind to yourself? Um, I think that's a huge compliment. Yes, mm-hmm. actually, um, I do. I I like who I am. I'm mm. I'm not perfect. Um, I certainly have my days where I. I'm angry or I cry or I wish things were different. I mean, don't we all have those days? Like I'm definitely human, but Mm -hmm. I also know that I'm a kind person. And if I make mistakes, they're not intentional. Mm -hmm. And if I hurt someone's feelings, it is never intentional. And that, that I usually if I know that I hurt someone's feelings, I will usually feel really bad about it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I don't do these things intentionally and that we all, no matter how hard we try or how pure our intentions are, none of us get through life unscathed. None of us get through life with everyone liking us. And so just accepting that fact and just trying to continue to do the best that I can 
is all I really can do. And know that my heart for whatever mistakes I've made or will make or, or are making, my heart is in the right place and that I certainly have never set out to destroy anyone or hurt anyone. Unless you're a predator, in which case I have no sympathy for you. <laughs> That's one of the most beautiful things anyone's ever said, honestly. I love that. I'm really happy that you're in that place and, uh, and that you just know yourself so well like that. Um, you know, coming out of all of that and, and, and going into, you know, now you're married and you've got kids and all of that. I, I, was it, um, you know, I know you're a strong person, but how, how did you adjust to just trying to have that regular, you know, dating life and meeting people and all of that? Um, I mean, I think well, all the things that I felt like had been taken away from me when I got rescued, I felt like I'd been given a second chance at him. So, I mean, before I was kidnapped, I'd never kissed anyone. I'd never held a boy's hand before. I mean, I'd hardly ever even spoken to a boy. Um, and so these are all things that all of a sudden going from that to being told that I was married to this old man, mm-hmm. um, it was quite shocking. And I felt like all of those things had been taken away from me. So they were certainly things that I was excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, coming home, I mean, I was excited to go on my first date. I was excited to have my first boyfriend. Um, and um, there were definitely probably some people that I look back and thinking, I sh- probably should not have bothered going out with you. <laughs> that probably was not my best decision. I mean, not that they're bad people or anything, yeah. but just, I mean, why, why did I say yes? Like there's yeah. really no reason for me to say yes to you. Um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think. That, I mean, I think some people, yeah, asked me out simply so they could say they went out with Elizabeth Smart. Um, mm-hmm. Some people, I think, were um, genuine. Um, I mean, I guess we all live and learn. And then, I mean, for my husband, he. He was born and raised in Scotland. He didn't know who I was. So yeah. it was nice to have someone like me simply for me. And honestly, even though um, doing like a podcast with you is not mm-hmm. something out of like the ordinary. You know, I, I do podcasts. I do public speaking. Um, mm-hmm. I've Honestly, I've done some pretty amazing things in my life that I never would have dreamed that I would ever do. Um, it's never... It's never played into my relationship with my husband. Um, and one thing I really admire about what you've done is you've really, you know, they took nine months from you, but you haven't let them take any more than that. And that's uh, so special and powerful that you've managed to do that. Um, I, I was reading up and I, I heard that, unfortunately, the woman has been released not long ago. Is that, is that, are you aware of all of that? And how did that make you feel? Yeah, so she was released, she's, I think it was about 18 months ago, mm. maybe it was two years ago, she's can't even, I don't know, I'm going yeah. to blame it on the pandemic, time yeah, has yeah. lost all meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all the same, we're all the same, every week's the same, yeah. Yeah, but um, it was a disappointment, yeah, it, mm. was a, it was a disappointment, it felt like, felt like I was being let down, um, but I think... That being said, it helped me. I mean, I, I should be grateful that I got at least 15 years of, of her being locked away of justice mm-hmm. because there 
are so many cases. I mean, the vast, vast majority of, of you know, these kinds of cases, their abusers don't ever even serve a day in prison. Yeah. And so I think that gave me a greater compassion and understanding for all of those other victims out there and how terrible it must be for them, you know, wondering if they're going to come home tonight and is someone going to crawl into their bed that they don't Mm -hmm. want in their bed? Or um, when they go to the next family reunion, how are they going to avoid that one one relative? Um, And if they speak out, who is going to believe them and who is going to believe that one relative? I mean, I think it really helped me understand more where these other victims are coming from um and i mean yeah it was a disappointment i can't there's yeah. nothing it's a, dis- really it's a disgrace it. it's a disgrace in my opinion because she was so complicit in everything that went on and so much a part of it that she should never have seen the light of day in my opinion but and, and the crazy thing after i did a little bit of reading was that she's now living near a school and after everything she did to a child it's it's disgusting how this thing just happens and we all just sort of go along with it um, because, you know, uh, government is just so full of shit. Um, sorry. But, um, <laughs> yeah, um, and, and one of the other things that um, I, I read up on was that, you know, shockingly you were a victim of sexual assault later in your life on an aeroplane as well, Um which gives you a whole nother experience because now you are this strong person who's overcome all of this horror and you're experiencing something else. It's just unbelievable. What what happened there? It is actually still an active case that the oh, really? FBI are still working on. Mm. So they've asked me not to say too much about it, mm-hmm. but I will say that it made me so angry that something like this could happen again. I mean, seriously, Mm. Like, this this is not okay. And if it can happen to me again, I mean, how many more people is it happening to? I mean, how many victims are there that just aren't saying anything? Because it is a hassle. It does Mm -hmm. take forever. And is justice ever really served? Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, my eyes have been opened a lot in the last few years, you know, um, through people like yourself speaking out and other other victims. But yeah, the fact that you've had such terrific things happen twice is, it just proves it's far too common. Um, Can we talk a little bit about some of the positive stuff that you've managed to do off the back of this? Because I was talking to um, your friend Sage uh, before we did this, and you guys are, you've got some amazing things going on, like online self-defense classes for women and you know you've been been an activist for years in fact so let's talk about some of the positive stuff okay yeah love to Mm. so yeah so um we are we have a self-defense class that we offer and are working on spreading that and making it more available obviously as we're still in the middle of a pandemic Mm -hmm. it's a bit hard but we're working on it and so we've been working to try to get that online and we hope to launch that very soon Mm -hmm. so that anyone can do it anywhere but um i mean self-defense i mean you would know more than anyone else i mean it's not just something you can go through once and be like yeah i'm good i'm done Mm -hmm. i mean for that to actually become instinct it's something you have to practice every single day so um for as much as we 
promote you know our self-defense system or any self-defense system for that matter um, we also promote practicing it and mm-hmm. thinking about it and staying up to date on it because otherwise it's not going to be there when you need mm-hmm. it and um, and that being said I also just want to say that even if you do practice it every day you never know how you're going to respond um, I mean my my head my director over this whole self-defense program you know she is a world champion for her weight class in jujitsu. And um, she, you know, she'll she'll be the first one to say, I practice this every day. I could still get raped tomorrow. This might not come to my mind when I need it because it's something you don't expect to happen to you. You think you're so prepared. You don't expect people in polite, modern day, civilized, what we think is humanity mm. um, t- to act this way. And so even with all this training, it is still possible to happen. But, you know, it helps build your confidence. It helps show you what you are capable of, mm-hmm. how strong you really are. And even if you can just build your confidence up just a little bit more, whether it's, you know, through self-defense or, or even just working out, so much the better because predators look for vulnerability. They look for opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a little extra confidence in your step, that might make you you know, take you down just a notch on that vulnerability scale just a little bit. And so mm-hmm. you, you, you don't know. So um, with our I self-defense... Speak, oh, sorry sorry to interject. Speaking from experience as well, because I'm a huge martial arts fan and I study, I do boxing as well. Like someone who a man who is untrained and is an opportunist like that against a woman who is trained you know that isn't a foregone conclusion the way it would be ordinarily if she wasn't trained like she's gonna she's gonna show him some shit and he he might regret that whole and fingers crossed i mean women should not need this obviously but it's fantastic that you are doing that absolutely and i Mm. i mean i don't want this to happen to anyone but i hope if any man does try to take advantage of a woman who has been mm-hmm. through training i hope she destroys him <laughs> <laughs> amen <laughs> um, um but yeah, yeah. You've, you've been you've been a great public speaker as well in america like um i, I heard your name is googled like a hundred thousand times a month because it, you're still so such a strong voice uh, for victims and um you've done a lot of that haven't you um, I have. I have been. I have been very active. I have done speaking and presentations in in all fifty states. Um, I go up to Canada. I would say semi regularly, except nothing's regular right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard you were trying to help with a law change in regards to the Native American situation. So, so we are actually launching our Find Them All campaign tomorrow okay great um because native americans they and and indigenous people they make up anywhere from 0.8 percent to two percent of our total population in america Mm -hmm. and yet the statistics they're they are so skewed they make up over 40% of our human trafficking victims here in America. And you think, how can, you know, 2% or less of the total population almost make up half of our human trafficking victims in America? That seems so off. Mm. And I mean, if you're, if you are a woman and you're Native American or indigenous, (laughs) like four out of five women are sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's, it almost comes to the point of 
not a question of if it happens, but when it happens. And it is, it's just so unfair um, on every level. Uh, I mean, kind of going off of what we were talking a little bit about earlier, my case received so much attention. I mean, people to this day still approach me in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, they still tell me, they still say things to me like, you know, there are a couple times in my life where I remember exactly where I was. The first one was when JFK was shot. And the second one was when you were found. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what I was doing. I mean, I've had that comment made to me actually many, many times. Mm-hmm. And... um that even right there just shows me how much attention my case got. And to think that there are so many women and girls who are native and indigenous missing right now. And yet I can think of maybe one. No, can't even think of one, one of their names. I haven't seen any of them on the news. I mean, it's just, it's unfair and it needs to change. Mm -hmm. And so, We need to raise awareness. Um, We are hoping to, um, so we are, our campaign is uh, a seven day, seven workout challenge um, Mm -hmm. to raise funds so that we can get these specialized scent kits distributed Mm -hmm. across reservations so that we can get these, if I go missing files um, that actually another podcast, Crime Junkies, have um, put together that is honestly so impressive um, mm-hmm. get these files distributed out um, across reservations and then be able to have we have this bloodhound who um, has been trained not just to track disturbance in the ground but to actually follow scent the way that it was described to me is that people each one of us we're each like our own individual pig pen um, mm. like from the character from Charlie Brown Mm-hmm. Um, we all walk around with like a dust, uh, dust cloud around of us, of scent, of cells, of um, whatever else we put mm-hmm. off. And so these dogs, they are able to track that dust cloud essentially that follows us everywhere we go. And so that's what we want to be able to do. Because one of the other big um, problems is that when these native and indigenous women go missing, they are lucky if they get a case number at all. Um, they It often can take up to two weeks to get a case number, just a case number. And unfortunately, the first 48 hours are honestly the most crucial. crucial. If yeah. you're not found within the first 48 hours, there's a pretty good chance you won't be found at all. So if you think it's taking two weeks just to get a case number... I mean, your chances of being found are not good at all. Mm-hmm. So we want to try to change that. We want to try to help um, bridge that gap, have boots on the ground looking for these women and girls within the first 24 hours, having mm-hmm. dogs out there trying to send them, trying to find them. Um, and and hopefully, I mean, it, it is hard. And I, I mean, I'm not a police officer. I'm not an FBI officer. Um, But each one of these reservations is essentially its own sovereign nation within Mm -hmm. America. And so they have their tribal police officers 
who have jurisdiction over the reservation, but mm-hmm. not off of the reservation. And then we have the police officers who are not on the reservation, who have jurisdiction you know, off of the reservation, but not on the reservation. Mm-hmm. And so it gets, it gets very confusing, very difficult and very confusing because, mm-hmm. you know, whose job is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, congratulations on getting involved in raising money and doing, you know, your best to help the situation. And I really hope it makes a difference. I'm sure it will. I guess I've only got one more question left because I've, I've taken a lot of your time. So I do appreciate that. Um, my final question is how would you like to be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? A good person? A kind person? Someone who did their best? Uh Someone who tried to make a difference? That's good enough? Well, uh, you're definitely that. There's no doubt about it. Um, uh, I just want to say a big thanks again, honestly. You're an absolute inspiration. And... Yeah, I'm just really grateful for the time. I've never I've never done a story like this on my podcast. It's very new. I was a bit nervous, if I'm honest, and you're absolutely lovely. And, um, yeah, just keep doing everything you're doing. And if you ever need anything, uh, we've got some followers on social media. So, let, you know, maybe I could send some um, traction to anything that you're trying to work on to help you out. Um, but, yeah, um, what is your website for anyone who wants to get involved with the self-defense stuff? So it's elizabethsmartfoundation.org. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, of course, we're on Facebook, we're on yep. Instagram. Look up Elizabeth. I mean, you can look up Elizabeth Smart and I'll come up. And, of course, <laughs> my foundation is is right there with me. Or you can just simply look up Elizabeth Smart Foundation and it's right there as well. But, well, know. I hope everyone enjoyed the story. I'm pretty sure it was... Um, an emotional ride but um you know you're doing so great um don't forget to hit the like button guys hit the subscribe button thanks for watching and we'll see you later thank you